Oh Lord, our God, we do worship you and we give you thanks. We praise you for your glory. We acknowledge your kingship over us. And we ask now, Father, as we look into passages dealing with your heavenly kingdom, that you would grant us grace to understand. You would grant me the grace I need to preach your message plainly and with clarity. And you grant my brothers and sisters the grace they need to understand what you would have them to learn. In the precious name of Christ, amen. I'd like you to picture this scene just for a moment. Jesus is advancing toward Jerusalem for the very last time on what we would call Palm Sunday. He's not coming in on a white Arabian charger like an advancing king. And what's he arriving in? Oh, a donkey. Very humble beast of burden. Nothing very glamorous about a donkey. He's coming in. The Passover is very near. And he is well aware that he is on a heroic journey. He is going to heroically advance God's kingdom by offering up himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And the Jewish people, the Old Covenant people, are waiting for him in Jerusalem. They not only want him to announce the kingdom, they want him to inaugurate the kingdom and advance it as a political regime. They want him to advance on the Romans and, quite frankly, throw them out of town. And he is well prepared to disappoint them. We know how the story goes, how the history reads. He goes into Jerusalem with great anticipation and disappoints those people. He does not overthrow the Romans. He does not advance God's kingdom the way they want him to advance it. And they deliver him over to that invading kingdom, the Romans, and the Romans nail him to the cross. The better way of looking at it is that he allowed them to do so. Christ wasn't a victim. Christ willingly sacrificed himself. He said, I lay down my life. No one could take it from him if he didn't will it. Now we know that the Jews of old misinterpreted and misunderstood God's kingdom. They got it wrong. They were looking for a visible manifestation of physical power. In other words, they wanted what the Romans had just with Jewish trappings. They wanted what the world had, what the kingdoms of the world had, just with Jewish trappings. And you know what? That's the way they always wanted it. Saul was their first king. He was a lousy king. They picked him because he was the tallest and the most handsome chap in the bunch. Unfortunately, quite frankly, he wasn't all that bright. And when they went to um, install him in the kingship, they couldn't find him. Where was he? This big, strong, masculine, John Wayne type of fellow. He was hiding in the luggage, in the saddlery, somewhere out back. And they had to go and fetch him and bring him forward. Not exactly George Washington. And the words that they used when they wanted a king were, Give us a king so that we might be like the other nations. 
The Jews of old always wanted to resemble their neighbors. They always wanted a kingdom with a visible king like their neighbors. And God said, fine. That's a paraphrase. Fine, I'll give you what you want. But beware, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I will give you a king and he will wear you down. The same problem arises for us. We do well not to misinterpret God's kingdom. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, as we continue to look into the Lord's prayer, we must pray that God would advance his kingdom. That's what we're praying for, that God would advance his kingdom. But we need to be careful and we need to be wise and realize that God is wiser, far wiser than we are, and that he will advance his kingdom exactly the way he wants to. And we need to get on board with his version of the kingdom rather than impose our version of the kingdom upon the reality of it. Now last week we learned, I hope you learned, that we are to use prayer as a spiritual weapon, literally a weapon in the advancement of God's kingdom. And I'd like to develop that a little bit more this week. I'll flush it out just a little bit more. So again, when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying for the advancement of God's kingdom. We're praying that God would advance his kingdom in every sphere of life, every single particle of life. But now, at this point, we come to a problem of literally epic proportions. Big, major problem. Here it is, if you're ready. We don't want God to advance his kingdom in every sphere of life. Not really. We don't want God to advance his kingdom in every sphere of life. Oh, we do want him to remove politicians that we disdain. We do want him to prosper us financially. We do want him to grant us physical health. We do want him to provide great educations and jobs for our children and our grandchildren. We do indeed want him to make our wives a little bit more compliant with some of our more ludicrous demands, don't we, gentlemen? And ladies, we know that you would like him to make your husbands just a little bit more helpful around the house and certainly much more attentive on Valentine's Day and anniversaries and birthdays. We want God to advance his kingdom the way we want him to. We want God to advance our kingdom without any inconvenience to ourselves. We want him to do everything he can do in his power, which is limitless, to remove everything and everyone that we dislike and that is a thorn in our personal sides. But we do not want him to inconvenience us and we certainly don't want him to change our hearts one fraction of an eighth of an inch. We would like to stay just as we are. Thank you very much, God. Change everyone around me, please, because life is driving me nuts. It's hard to change. It's hard to repent. It's hard to live a godly life. It's not easy walking the Christian path. It never has been. It never will be. And here's a little secret. It's not supposed to be. It's never promised 
We're never promised an easy go of it. As a matter of fact, if I'm remembering that reading from Matthew correctly, now granted it's talking about the disciples, but there's an ancillary message for us. We are sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, I'm pretty much a city boy, but I know enough about nature to know that sheep and wolves don't, generally speaking, get along. Wolves gang up on sheep. They descend in a pack and they rip the sheep to shreds and turn them into mutton and lamb chops. That's exactly what the kingdom of Satan wants to do to us. But we need to be praying that God would advance his kingdom and we need to be willing that God would advance his kingdom in every sphere of life. Because you see, this understanding that God's kingdom is for us, that God's kingdom has to be molded into a shape that we like, that's a problem. And whenever you have one problem you automatically create other ones. For instance, if someone decides, well, I think I'm going to turn my life in, I'll be a drug addict. Well, that's one problem. They're going to wreck their physical and mental health, and guess what? They'll ruin their family life. They'll ruin their finances. They might get in trouble with the law. They might end up in prison. They might end up dead. One problem does lead to another. One sin leads to another, and very often, sin in itself is enough punishment from God for sin. He doesn't have to judge your sin. He just has to allow you to continue in it and you'll wreck your life. One of the problems that arises from our misunderstanding of the kingdom is that, well, when this situation arises, we can't pray in faith. We can't pray properly, thy kingdom come, because we don't know what we're praying for. We don't have any conception of what the kingdom looks like. We can't pray in faith. And if you can't pray for something in faith, guess what? God's not going to hear the prayer. Oh, he'll hear it, but he won't answer it. Without faith, the book of Hebrews tells us, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please God. So when you go to God, you have to be praying to him in faith. Now I know that that's not easy. That when we go to God, we are scared very often. We're in doubt. We worry. Am I trusting God enough? Do I have enough faith? Now, I don't want you to um, increase your paranoia. God understands that we're weak. God understands that our faith is weak. That's not really the issue. You see, if you understand that your faith is weak, then you're on the proper road. Because then you can ask in faith that God would strengthen your faith. You see? But you have to have that knowledge. And the second problem is, it prevents us from seeing God's kingdom. We might pray in faith. We might think we're praying for the proper thing, but we might actually be praying for something that's not even on God's agenda. Have you ever at work had to go to some type of meeting, a committee meeting, and someone is just not with the group whatsoever? They just, they just, they're not, they're not with it. They're going completely off agenda, and they want to discuss things that aren't pertinent to anybody else in the room, and it's, it's, it's annoying. It's a waste of time. 
and it usually aggravates everyone else in the room. Usually this person has a very powerful personality and tries to buffalo the rest of the group into changing the agenda. But we have got to get God's agenda to become our agenda. And when that occurs, we can then pray in faith that God would advance his kingdom because God's vision of the kingdom will be our vision of the kingdom. And it's always very good when our thoughts and our desires align themselves with God's thoughts and his desires. It's never good when we're against God's authoritative will. It never works out very well for us. He's simply too powerful. He's simply too sovereign. He's eternal and we're not. So, if we're to pray for God to advance his kingdom, we need to know what it looks like. We need to know the scope of God's kingdom. We need to know what God's kingdom encompasses. And I have a very simple answer for you. One word. Everything. Everything on this planet is supposed to be reflecting God's kingdom. Your thoughts, your words, your actions, your non-actions, politics, the arts, your work life, your leisure time, your money, what you buy, what you don't buy, how much you save, how much you spend, the shoes that you wear, the sunglasses you wear, the watch that you wind in the morning. Everything is part and parcel of God's kingdom. Your family, this church, the church with a capital C throughout the world, the state, the state, education, everything, the books you read, the movies you watch, the movies you don't watch, the sports you participate in, those that you take a pass on, everything is part and parcel of God's kingdom. It's, it's very easy. Now, what we like to do is we like to leave a little part out. <laughs> we like to leave a little part out. I'll give God everything, but I'm just, there's one little part of my life, Lord, that I really don't want to be part of your kingdom because I don't want to give this up. Well, this goes back to what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. That if our eye offends us, if our right eye offends us, if our right eye causes us to sin, what does he say we're supposed to do? Cut it out. I mean, literally, gouge it out. If our right hand causes us to sin, what does he tell us to do? Cut it off. Now, we know we're not supposed to physically do that. It's metaphorical. It's showing us that sin hurts. And it hurts a lot when we cut it out of our lives. Well, let me ask you something. Is there any part of your life that you're holding back on? Is there a part of your life that you're not going to give to Christ? Hmm. I hope not. Let me tell you a little bit about one of my heroes, Abraham Kuyper. I might have mentioned him uh, once or twice in Sunday school. Abraham Kuyper was a Dutchman. You spell his name K-U-Y-P-E-R. Go home and Google him. Maybe not today, but maybe tomorrow. Fantastic Christian. A Dutchman of the 19th century and part of the early 20th century. He was a pastor, a reformed pastor, a Dutch reformed pastor. So I'm going to like him, generally speaking. 
He's a theologian of some merit, wrote some very, very deep books, gave some very serious lectures. He was a journalist, started his own newspaper. He was a politician, was actually the prime minister of the Netherlands. Wouldn't that be neat to have a reformed theologian as your prime minister for four years? Now, that sounds like an awfully good alternative to what might be coming down the pike for us, but that's a topic for a whole different discussion. And there's no guarantee that things always work out because if you haven't looked, the Netherlands are pretty much a cesspool at this point. It's a cesspool. Kuiper understood one of his defining ideas was that everything, every sphere of life was Christ's. Sphere sovereignty, the state, the church, and the family... Everything is under the rule of Christ. And that those three spheres interrelate and are interdependent upon each other. For instance, the church has no right to physically execute anyone. The church session has the right and the the responsibility to excommunicate people from the Lord's table. The state, however, has no right to tell us who can come to the Lord's table. The state, however, does have the power of the sword. That's what Romans 13 says. It is the sword of the Lord. But they cannot tell us how to worship the living God. They cannot. That is against their view. The family has its own rights. And when all those spheres work nicely together in harmony, you have a little taste of God's kingdom on earth. You have a little foretaste of what heaven is like where everything runs smoothly. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everything is Christ. Here's what Kuiper says. Listen to this fantastic quote. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. For Kuiper, God's kingdom wasn't uh, an hour a week sitting in the Sunday morning pew, church type of affair. It was a 24-7 proposition. Wherever God happens to plant your feet, wherever you go, that's where the kingdom of God is. question is, is that your view? Or is there something in your life that is put on hold with regard to your Christianity? Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your role as a father. I don't know. It could be a lot of things. Maybe it's the way you spend your leisure time. If there is really such a thing, certainly the way we spend our money is a big battle for most of us. We like to kind of be sovereign over the way we spend our money when in reality it's God's money. He's loaned it to us and we have to use it for his purposes. And ironically, when we use our money and our talents for God's purposes, we're actually more happy than if we use it for our selfish purposes. It's very strange how that works. Satan's kingdom is exactly the opposite of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is a kingdom of love. Satan's kingdom is one of hate. God's kingdom is a God of grace. In Satan's world, there is no grace because he cannot dispense grace. In Satan's world, there is no mercy because he has no right to dispense mercy. God's kingdom is a kingdom of light. Satan's is a kingdom of darkness. If God's kingdom is a kingdom of life, then Satan 
Satan's realm is a realm of death and despair and ugliness. You want to know what Satan's kingdom really looks like? You want to get a little glimpse of it? Just think of what happened in Colorado last week. That horrible shooting in a movie theater. That's what Satan is after. That's pure ugliness. That's irrational. That's evil. People ask me, is that person crazy? I say, you know, I don't even like that word. Why don't we just say evil? Why don't we just say evil? It's much more truthful. I've met a number of people with very serious mental difficulties, and they don't do that. That's what evil looks like. It's ugly. It's malicious. It's malignant. It feeds off of other people's suffering. And we need to pray that God would advance his kingdom. And when we pray that, we're asking him to destroy that which is evil, ugly, malicious, and malignant. When we pray thy kingdom come, we're asking that God would destroy evil. Most of us don't have much problem with that. And if the scope of God's kingdom is everything, then there's the scope of Satan's kingdom. It's anything and everything that is in opposition to God's kingdom. Because please remember, I said it last week, Satan cannot create, he can only destroy. Satan cannot create, he can only mimic, he can only parody what he thinks God's kingdom should be. He can only take what God has made and twist it and warp it. So, you will find Satan's kingdom everywhere you go as well. You'll even find it in the church. Oh, I've probably got your attention now. How do we see it in the church, for instance? Well, what about when God-fearing brothers and sisters fight and malign each other, not over important doctrinal issues, but just over silly personal issues? Here's how it usually plays out in the churches. Two basic issues. We want the church music to be tailored to our personal tastes. And when that doesn't happen, everybody else is just flat out wrong. Or we want the teaching of the church, the preaching ministry of the church, the teaching ministry of the church to be a seven-minute softball of syrup-laden platitudes. And when we don't get that, we get angry and nasty. We're not talking about the virgin birth. We're not talking about Apostles' Creed type of level doctrines. We're talking about personal minutia. That's where you see Satan rearing his head. We all come from families. We know what family fights look like. We don't have to discuss that very much. They're nasty, aren't they? And they hurt. They hurt. When your brother won't talk to you or your sister is angry with you or your husband and wife aren't talking or children are fighting with their parents, we know what that looks like. You see, the family is supposed to be harmonious and a place of love. We know that's never going to happen perfectly, but that's something that we're supposed to be praying for. And when it's not, we know that we see Satan's handiwork. Dissension, disorder, distrust disharmony, they're all Satan's handiwork. Whenever you see them, you need to pray that God would obliterate it. Just get rid of it. Because none of those things are in heaven. Flash forward a little bit. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Jesus' temptation in the desert shows that Satan has very vast powers. He offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I can deliver them to you because they have what? Been given into my hands. But here's the catch. Is that Satan does have vast powers. But listen, carefully please. He's a liar. He's a showboat. He's a boaster. He's a con man. He's a snake oil salesman. He actually thinks he's more than he is, and he wants to convince you that he is more than he is. He's a liar. What what does Jesus say? He's talking to the unbelieving Jews in John chapter 8. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. You see, this is what Satan's kingdom is. It's a kingdom of smoke and mirrors. It's made of sand. It's an illusion. Now, when we pray that God would destroy the kingdom of Satan, how does God do that? He does it by the work of Christ. 1 John chapter 3. For this purpose, the Son of God was made manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now listen, mechanical, worldly, programmatic, political movements will not win this war. We can use those things, but they will not win the war. It is only the gospel, only the power of life, that will overthrow the kingdom of Satan. It's only the gospel. Now this brings us to the crux of the issue. When we pray thy kingdom come... What we're doing in the positive sense is we're asking God to advance the gospel. We're asking God to advance the gospel, the good news of Christ, the good news of salvation, the good news of freedom from slavery to sin and death, freedom from the grave. What's the primary means that God uses to advance this kingdom? What I'm doing right now, the preaching of the gospel, that's the main way he does it. Do you have any idea how terrifying that is for me? <laughs> to realize that what I do once a week is God's primary means of advancing his kingdom. You cannot imagine how scary that proposition is to any pastor who sits and thinks about his position for more than a minute. Romans ten seventeen. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The preaching of the Bible is the God-ordained means for the lost to get saved. This is not entertainment. I hope I'm interesting, but that's not my goal. My goal is to feed you. Even if the food may be a little dry, maybe if the food is a little overdone, sometimes nutritious food doesn't taste quite like yodels or donuts. Generally speaking, it doesn't. Rice and vegetables, donuts, hmm. You have to choose. Donuts, generally speaking, are sweeter, especially if they're glazed and they've got a lot of icing on them. But it's not very nutritious. It'll wear you down. And if preaching is the primary means of spreading the gospel, then you need to pray for preachers. You need to pray for me. You need to pray that I fulfill my duty, my commission, 
as a preacher. And you need to be praying for other preachers as well. You do. Earlier in Romans 10. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Please pray for me and my brothers. Because we desperately need your prayers. You also need to pray that God makes the preaching ministry effective and powerful. I can, my brothers and I can prepare fine messages, godly messages, biblically correct messages, but if it's not going into your ears and your heart, then it's just nice, eloquent words. You do need to pray for yourselves as well. Um, did you pray last night or this morning that God would give you a message today? Did you pray that he would you know, wake you up? I know it's kind of early. That he would wake you up and make you attentive? That his spirit would speak to you? Or did you actually come in here hoping that my human words and your human ears and human heart would somehow mesh and make everything better? This is supernatural activity. Without the spirit of God, you can't understand anything I'm saying. And without the spirit of God, I might say all kinds of nonsense. You need to pray for me, you need to pray for the message, and you need to pray for your own reception of it as well. And when those three things coincide, guess what? Your life changes, the church changes, the world changes, and God's kingdom is advanced. You need to pray that God would remove heresy and corruption from the church. There's a lot of it today. There's always been a lot of it, but there's quite a bit of it today. And with the advancement of modern media, the message is moving very, very quickly. And years, years ago, if you were a heretic, you had to go door to door. Now with the Internet, you don't have to leave the comfort of your own bedroom. You can get out all kinds of blasphemous messages just with the click of a, of a, of a computer mouse. You don't have to do much work. What you need is a computer and a Wi-Fi connection and you can spread all types of false doctrine. You need to pray that God removes those things. The people of God need strong doctrinal meat to make them powerful so that they can live heroic lives. But too many of us, too many of us want, want, want it watered down and we want it saccharine laden. And that, that, listen, you know what that's like? When you water something down and add saccharine, do you know what you have? You have diet pop. Can you live for very long on Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi? No, you cannot. No, you will stay hydrated. That's about it. You won't get any nourishment out of it. It will quench your thirst for a very brief time. But there's no, there's no calories in it. No calories. Guess what? You starve to death. Are you the type of person who wants milk or meat? Some of us don't even want milk. We really want diet cola. And the reason for that is our sin. The last thing you really need to pray for is that God would give you, A, a knowledge of your personal sin, B, a hatred of your personal sin, and then last, but certainly not least, a will that God would kill this personal sin in your life. 
Paul tells us in Colossians 3 to mortify the deeds of the flesh. When we say, oh, I'm mortified by what you just said, that's kind of improper language. To mortify means to kill, to make mortal. Are you willing to ask God to wage complete and utter war on the sin in your life? Or do you want to fight the war with half measures because the sin is pleasurable? Think of World War II. The Allies, they didn't, they didn't dilly-dally with Imperial Japan, did they? Certainly not at the end under Truman. Total war. They didn't dilly-dally with the Nazis. Total war. They went in and they got the job done. If they didn't, guess what? We'd still be fighting the war. That's the attitude that you need to have. That God, you would be able in faith to ask God, obliterate all the sin in my life. Obliterate all the sin in my family's life. Make it so disgusting to us that we hate it and we just want it to go away. If you can pray that prayer in faith, God will start to reveal things about your life that you didn't know existed. But when you start getting rid of them, it feels so very good. But the problem is, we don't want that. We want God to do skirmishes and take little things out of our life, but not the big things. Lord, please change my eating habits, but please let me still continue with this or that behavior. Lord, I really don't have a problem with eating, but boy, I have a problem with this, but I'd like to still do that. We can't pick and choose. It has to be a total war. God has brought you into the hallowed halls of his kingdom. What will you do with that inheritance? Will you walk in the ways of the world? Or will you do everything you can by God's grace to advance his kingdom and fulfill your destiny as a child of God? I pray that none of us waste any more time because that final day is quickly and rapidly approaching. Let us pray to the king of that last day. Almighty God, we ask that you would grant us a hatred of sin and a love for beauty and righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.